I, I wanna get right into the word of God with you because there is no higher honor in my life than to be able to answer Jesus' resurrected command to the apostle Peter when he said on the shores of Galilee, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And I, I, I hear that command resonate in my heart time and time again. And so we're gonna do that today. We're gonna, we're gonna feed on the word of God together. And uh, let, me, let me just say, if you're a guest and this is your first time here, this is a special day. They don't usually dote on us like that, although we are so grateful for it. Um, I also want to let you know that uh, I'm glad they did that before the message because I'm about to preach to you about your personal finances. So it was probably a lot easier to say thank you before we got into it. Then afterwards, no, in all seriousness, uh, I do want to get right into what is part three of a series we're calling Kingdom Builders. And as we get into the word today, and I've just said how much I value preaching the word, somebody might wonder, why would you give a whole week then of your sermon time to personal finances? And, and let me just give you a more biblical or more accurate question that you should be asking, and, and that is, in light of what the scripture says, why would we only give one weekend? to talking about personal finances. Why just one three-week series about money? When in, in the reality, when you look at the word of God, did you know that out of the 32 parables that Jesus taught, 16 of them have to do with money and possessions? I'm no mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that's about half. That, that's a lot of conversation about money. The book of Philippians that the, the, apostle, the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi is a thank you letter for a generous financial contribution. That's why he wrote the letter. The book of Proverbs is practically a finance and business management class. There are 2,350 verses roughly in the word of God about money. So here's what we know. Of all the things that you could think about this week that you might possibly think more about than even Jesus, money's right at the top of that list. And in fact, money is the only thing that Jesus gave a godlike status to when he said this in Matthew chapter 6. He said, no one can serve two masters. What's going to happen? Either you're going to love the one and you're going to hate the other, or you're going to despise the one and be devoted to the other. But then he says this, you cannot serve both God and money. I said this in week one of the series. I want to say it again today. Money is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. If you're a guest today, I also want you to know this. We're not going to receive another offering this morning, all right? <laughs> I want you to know that because I, I don't want you to, to be listening, waiting for the bait and switch or waiting for me to set the hook in your jaw and ask you to give to something. I want you to know today I'm not here to fundraise. I'm not trying to get your money. What I am trying to do is get you on mission. And I believe that God has called each and every one of us to be kingdom builders with our lives. And that includes our finances. I heard the story of a guy who got saved in the church and they were doing a water baptism down at the river. And so he goes down to the river to get baptized and, and he's walking out into the water. He gets about thigh deep in the water and he realizes he still has his wallet in his back pocket. 
So he just pulls it out, and he's kind of too far from the shore to go back. So he just holds his wallet, and he gets out there into the water, and, and the pastor baptizes him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he goes under the water, but when he does, he, he keeps his wallet out to keep it safe. And as funny as that is, that's kind of a picture of how a lot of Christians live their life. Like fully consecrated, surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, except except for my finances. Like, let's keep the money out of this thing. God wants us to serve him with all of our lives, and that, church, includes how we handle our resources. In week one of this series, I talked about tithing. Tithe is a math term. It means 10%. And in the Bible, the Lord says, bring the tithe into the storehouse. It's not just a percent. It's, it's also a priority. The Bible calls the tithe the first fruits. So it's about giving a percentage of our income, but it's also about the priority of giving the first percentage, the first 10% of our income to the Lord. And we looked at Matthew chapter, or Malachi chapter 3, where God says, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to bless your life. And so I want to go back there, but I want to go to a couple verses before the ones we looked at, because what I didn't do in that message was answer the question, why? And maybe you would wonder today, why does God want us to tithe? I mean, it's not like he needs our money. Come on. How many of you know God, God doesn't need your money? The word says he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. The, the gold is mine, says the Lord. The silver is mine. So he, he's, he's not scraping by with his streets of gold. All right, he, he doesn't need your money, so why? I want you to see this in Malachi chapter 6, beginning in verse, or Malachi 3, beginning in verse 6. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. In other words, God says, look, I'm always faithful. Like, if, 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 if I had mood swings, like you have mood swings, I would have killed all of you. Like, that's what the Lord's saying. He's saying, the reason you're still alive, the only reason I didn't destroy you is because I don't change. That, that's what he says to the people. But then look at the next verse. He says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Here's the heartbeat of God today. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. That's what I want you to hear in the heart of God. He's saying, return to me even today, even in a sermon about personal finances. If you're far from God, you need to know the Holy Spirit is always calling out, Return to me. It's one short step back into redemption. It doesn't matter how far you've run from God or how long you've strayed. If you'll return to me, he says, I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, it goes on, how are we to return? Can I just stop here and say that God could have given a lot of answers to that question. How are we supposed to return? Well, you can start by being more faithful to church. You could sing a little louder in worship. You could pray with a little more emotion. You could, you could take care of the widows and the orphans. Why don't you tell people about my son? Why don't you go out and show evangelism? I mean, there's all kinds of ways that God could have answered the question when he said, return to me. And he said, how? How are we going to return? Look at verse 8. God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask how are we robbing you in tithes and in offerings? He goes on in verse 9 to say, you are under a curse. Your whole nation, 
because you are robbing me. So, so what God is saying through the prophet Malachi is really the same thing that Jesus said in the gospel of Matthew. When Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what he's saying, what Jesus said and what Malachi is saying is that your possessions reveal the position of your heart. And so how, how are we how are we supposed to come back to you? God's saying the indication that I'm not the Lord of your life is that you haven't put me first in your finances. Like you're kind of there, you're halfway there, but you're holding your billfold out of the water. And so God is saying, come back to me. How do we come back? Show me the evidence that your whole life is consecrated to the Lord. And I want you to hear above everything else, the Holy Spirit saying today, return to me and I will return to you. How do we do that? The way we do that, church, is by prioritizing our lives, including our finances, around the purpose of God. I want to share a testimony with you this morning. I've gotten several testimonies over the last couple of weeks in this series, and one of them was from Carrie Steele. Uh, some of you might know Chris and Carrie. They, they both got baptized just a couple weeks ago at our New Life Sunday service, and she sent me an email, gave me permission to share it with you. Here it is. She said, good morning, I wanted to send you this email because for the first time in my life, I gave a real tithe. That means it was 10% and it was the first 10%. She said, the sermon two weeks ago resonated within me as often it does at our church. I've been scared and even selfish to follow a handful of God's directives for my life at times, but fear is a liar. I'm doing my best. But I cannot say that if I'm not giving my first 10% in honor of what God does relentlessly 100% of the time. So good. She said, Chris had missed the first Kingdom Builder service, and I kept saying to him how real and powerful it was. So last evening, we listened to it together. I had written out my bills for this week on Wednesday evening, and I had the list sitting on the table. After listening to the service again last night, I wrote above the entire list, God first. God is the only reason I'm here today, and I want to be my best, even in the struggle. Isn't that an awesome testimony? Amen. Amen. Last week, I, I talked about radical generosity and the reality that radical generosity has to be experienced before it's expressed. The, 1 John 4.19 says it like this, we love because he first loved us. Like that, that's, that's where generosity comes from. It, we, we are recipients of God's most lavish expression of grace through the cross of Christ Jesus. And because he loves us, now we love also. Jesus said it like this in Luke 7.47. He said, the one who's forgiven little loves little. But for those of us that have been blood washed and redeemed, for those of us that know what the penalty of our sin deserved, which is death, and that we didn't have to pay that penalty because Christ paid it for us on the cross, we live from a posture of, of being recipients of God's radical generosity. He bankrupted heaven for your account. He sent his son 
to die. And when we live out of that, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we lead. Here's my prayer for our church during this whole series. My prayer is that the amazing grace that we love to sing about that saved us would also be the grace that compels us to live lives of radical generosity towards other people. And can I just pause the sermon for commercial interruption for a moment and say, we have a great opportunity next Monday to show generosity to this community. This is our 10th annual Fall Fest coming up. And some people, you know, want to every year, people want to ask, why do you do that? Why do you celebrate? We, we have one agenda. We want to love this community. We want, to just, we want to just embrace them with the love of Jesus. We want them and their family to have a great time. We want them to know there's a people here who care about them. And if they want to know why we care, we'll tell them, he first loved us. That's why. That's why we love you. That's why we serve this community. And, and, and I believe on the authority of Ephesians 6, 8 uh, and, and Luke 6, 38, that what I make happen for others, God will make happen for me. I believe that. What you make happen for others, God will make happen for you. I want to give you another testimony that I received this week. They gave me permission to share this. This one's from Harry Valverde. Him and Jenna, they dedicated their son, Nico. I have a picture up here. Uh, just earlier this year, they de dedicated their firstborn son. He wrote me an email this week, and this is what he said. I just wanted to reach out to you and let you know a cool little story where my wife and Jenna have seen God moving in incredible ways. Growing up in the church, since I was a wee little kid, I never understood the importance of tithing and giving to the church. I grew up in a Christian household, going to church every Sunday, even went to a Christian school my whole life. But once I finally started getting my paychecks as I began my adult career, I never even gave a thought to tithing. Once I met my wife, she explained to me the importance of tithing and how important that was to her. So we began tithing to our church. Thank God for godly wives, right? <laughs> we began tithing to our church at that time, and I still did not really see the importance of it. I kind of just did it because my wife wanted to. It wasn't until I listened to the first message of Kingdom Builders and I saw all the fruits and vegetables on one table, the 90%, and the other fruits and vegetables on the other table, the 10%, that I realized, wow, how selfish of me. I made it an effort to make sure we were tithing the 10%. And the testimony gets even better. He writes, this past month, we were blessed with a large amount of money as a gift from family. And at first, I didn't even think to tithe or give any of it away. We then decided, hey, let's take 10% of this and give it to someone in need. Well, last Sunday, the two missionaries who came to speak over the weekend expressed their need of finances for their mission work in the Czech Republic. What better time to be able to give generously to such a great cause? He says, we had debts to pay off. But instead of putting that money towards the debt first, we decided to give generously. To add, once we gave to the missionaries, we got a random reimbursement check in the mail the very next day for something we had overpaid for a year prior. All this to sum up, how incredible is God? When we trust God with our finances and put him first in everything, he says, 
He is there to watch over us. These past two messages have been nothing but a blessing to our marriage and have motivated us to give so generously. Take care. Isn't that awesome? Church, can I just tell you, you can't outgive God. You can try, but you can't outgive God. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, I know we put these on the screen, but if you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Because some of you, even this week, you're going to need more time to go back and, and process the word of the Lord here. And so I want you to bookmark it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to begin in verse 6. There, there is so much more here than I have time to to really do more than scratch the surface on. But I want you to see this. Paul writes to the church, beginning in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly, or under compulsion. Now, that's so important, because listen, a lot of people, they, they, they have a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy, and they're quick to give when they feel a tug on their emotions. Maybe, you know, maybe it's something as recent as like Hurricane Ian, and you see the news, and, and you feel compelled to do something, or maybe you're just channel surfing, and you know, you, you hear the sad music, and you see the, the wounded puppies on the screen, and you're like, oh man, take my money. You know, you, we've all been there before, right? With some cause, maybe that's not it for you, but, but on some level, we've all been compelled to give. Now, that's not wrong. Thank God for that. That's called an offering. I feel compelled to offer something. Thank God for that. But Paul is saying here, like, that's, that's, if you just give when you feel the tug on your emotional heartstrings, if you just give because you see a need, you have missed the discipline of obedience. So Paul is saying, don't just give because you're giving out of compulsion or, or don't give reluctantly because somebody's twisting your arm. Listen, if people are twisting your arm to give, that's not of God. He says, don't, don't do that. Don't give for those reasons. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. I know this is going to be a stretch for some of you, but that means you can even smile when the ushers are collecting the offering. I mean, that would probably it would be hard, but you could do it. Like, it's possible. Okay. He loves a cheerful giver. And then it doesn't just stop there. It's not just God loves a cheerful giver. Look at the next verse. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Let's not forget that. There's something that, that, that we always have to keep in the back of our mind when we give, and it's this. God has resources that I haven't accounted for yet. Like God, God can meet my needs, but more than that, God can bless me abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. For as it is written, he says, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now that, that's a quote from Psalm 112. And some of you should write that down. Psalm 112 is a whole psalm about finances. And, and, and he, he grabs that Old Testament scripture and he says, freely they've scattered their gifts, their righteousness endures forever. He's not saying you've purchased the righteousness of God by giving to the poor. You can't buy the grace of God. And if it was for sale, how many of you know you couldn't earn it? You, you couldn't afford it. 
He's saying it's evidence. When I see the way that you live a radically generous life, it's evidence that your righteousness endures forever. Why? Because it's not just lip service, but there's a practical outflowing of the work of redemption in your life. Look at verse 10. He goes on and he says, Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, God, who gives you seed to sow and bread to eat, is going to do more than that when you, when you give. He says, I'm going to give you more seed to fill your storehouse, and I'm going to enlarge the harvest. Why? Why would God do that? Because he loves a cheerful giver. And there's one of two ways that you can, you can move forward. You can move forward just holding on to everything God has and that he's given you and trying to make it last. Or you can recognize that part of what God has blessed my life was intended to be a blessing in other people's lives. And he says, I love when you live your life out of that posture. So yes, I'm going to give you seed to sow. And yes, I'm going to give you bread to eat. But I'm going to give you more seed for your storehouse to sow above and beyond, and I'm going to give you more of a harvest of your righteousness. And then verse 11 says why he does it. You will be enriched in every way so that, here's the reason, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So Paul says there's a reason that God wants to bless your life, and the reason he wants to bless you is so that you can be generous. He wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing. There's two ways that you can live under the umbrella of God's blessing in your life. You can either be a, a container that receives the blessing of God as it comes down towards your life, or you can be a conduit. Now, a lot of people, they thank God for the blessing. They give him praise. They recognize he's the one it comes from, but they're just containers. In other words, the blessing of God flows in your life, but it doesn't go anywhere else. It just stays right there. And it's kind of a, an impoverished way of, of looking at the favor of God. It's, it's the, the people that kind of live by the mantra that I'm just going to, I'm going to just grab all I can and can all I grab and sit on the can. Like, I'm just going to hold on because the last blessing from God might be the last blessing from God. And so I'm, I'm just going to save it. I'm going to preserve it. I'm going to hold the fort until he comes. I hate that song. Some of the hymns are great. That's not one of them. Hold the fort. Come on, advance the kingdom. Hold the fort. I don't know who wrote that. Anyway, you can also be a conduit. A conduit says, I recognize that God has poured into my life, and now I'm going to let him flow through my life. It's, it's, it's aligning our lives under the covenant that God gave Abraham. I will bless you to be a blessing. It's, it's like a it's like a gutter on the side of your house that, you know, we live wide open to the blessing and the favor of God. But as he pours into our life, we channel it in different directions to the downspouts, to meet needs in other people's lives, to, to send the blessing of God to those people. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, God's going to do, he's going to continue to bless your life because he loves a cheerful giver. Now, here, here's what I know. Most all of us would agree, like, that's where I want to be. Like, amen, yeah, that's, that's where I want to live. I, I want to be that kind of person. But the truth is, 
Talking about money stresses you out. Like your toes are curled this morning. You know, like you're just kind of sitting there like clenched. Like, man, this is not what I came for today. The truth is, the greatest result that, that, that I could see come out of this sermon series, aside from salvation, nothing trumps that, but aside from somebody giving their life to Jesus Christ, my greatest desire would be to see the Holy Spirit set some people free from the mastery of money. Jesus, you can't, Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can serve God or you can serve money. And I I don't want any gods before me in my life. And my desire is that God would set some people free, but you have to decide who your master is. Like Carrie, you have to, at the top of your your list of bills, you have to say, God first. Like God is first. And I'm gonna tell you a couple practical things about tithing. Maybe you've never heard a, a minister of the gospel say this before, but you need to grab a hold of this truth today. Tithing is spiritual but it's not mystical. Understand, it is spiritual. In other words, when you operate in obedience to the command of the Lord, when you walk in faith, when you put God first in your priority and with the percentage, there are things that God does that you can't account for. Like Harry and Jenna had no idea there was a check in the mail coming to them the day after they sacrificially gave to a missionary cause before paying their own debt. That, that's spiritual. That's, that's the Lord at work. But understand, while tithing is spiritual, it's not mystical. And what I mean by that is tithing is a principle of stewardship. Like the idea of giving to God the first tenth of my income assumes that I know what 100% of my income is. And, and so knowing how much you actually have is step one of a budget. Like, What do do I have? Well, if I'm gonna give God the first 10%, I gotta know what I have. And and let me just say, because tithing is not mystical, just because you put God first with the first 10% and you're responsible with the tithe, that does not give you an exemption to be irresponsible with the other 90%. Maybe you never heard a preacher say this before. Maybe you thought like, you know what? If you just give, God's gonna work it all out for you. Listen, I'm gonna tell you, if you're faithful with the first 10%, and unfaithful with the other 90%, you're still gonna have more bills than you have money. You, you, because, because this is not mystical. It's not magic. Now God's gonna add, he's gonna add his blessing. He's gonna add his favor. And we talked about that in weeks past, but I want you to know that, 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 that it, it's stewardship. And at the end of our life, when we stand before God, what we're gonna discover if we don't learn it now is that all of life was a stewardship test. God's gonna ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? He's gonna ask that about your time. You gotta budget that. He's gonna ask you that about your your treasure. He's gonna ask you that about your talent. All of life is a stewardship test. When we stand before God, we stand empty-handed and alone. And we give an account for our life and the deeds done in the body. And so so tithing is spiritual, but it's not mystical. I, I was amazed to read these stats this week. Nearly 70% of Americans don't use a budget at all to manage their money. And it's no wonder that 75% of employees live paycheck to paycheck at some point in time. 75%. And 70% say they're in debt. 
So, so understand, that tithing is spiritual, but tithing is the beginning of, of budgeting. In other words, it's saying, I know what I have, and I'm deciding where it's going. Now, some people, they hear the word budget, and I might as well have cussed in the pulpit. You're like, I don't like that language. <laughs> Let me give you a different word for that. Spending plan. It's, that's what a budget, it's a spending plan. Because a lot of people, when you say budget, they just think, I know what that is. That just means I get to scratch off all the things that I want to spend my money on. And I have to, you know, I can't do any of that stuff. But, but here's the beauty of a spending plan. It's your spending plan. It's your money. You get to decide what's on the list. You can spend it on anything you want. But the idea is that you have a plan, that you don't find out at the end of the month where it went, but you predetermined, beginning with the tithe, beginning with the Lord's portion, you say, God first, here's what he gets. Now here's what AT&T gets. And you know, here's, here's what Netflix gets. And, and here's, here's what uh, Chick-fil-A gets. And we gotta, you know, he, that doesn't count as tithe, by the way. If you eat at Chick-fil-A. I know that's God's chicken, but that is not tithe. You, you decide. That's what the spending plan is. And I'm not going to go into any more detail on that because there's plenty of resources, free resources for how to set up a budget. You know, I've determined personally, again, Jesus said this only about money. He said, you can't serve God in money. So I read a lot of books, but every year, several years ago, I decided I'm going to read one finance book every year. I want to guard my heart. I want to make sure I'm, I'm doing this right. I want to make sure I'm leading my family well, first and foremost, but I want to lead the church well. And I don't want any other God to come before the Lord. So I just challenge you with that. But I want you to know today, this is the heart of this pastor. I can't speak for everybody else, but, but I don't have a get-rich-quick plan for you. I'm not going to pretend that if you feel convicted or emotional and you give in one offering, that that's going to undo a, a bad lifestyle of, of stewardship. But what I do believe is this. I believe the Holy Spirit can help you. I believe the Holy Spirit can enable you to prioritize your life around the mission of God. In fact, I believe you can even grow in the grace of giving. God can help you to do that. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 says this. It says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. And often when we think about that, we think about, you know, maybe the verbal gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy or tongues and interpretation of tongues. And all those are great. But he says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Did you know Romans chapter 12 calls giving a gift of the Spirit? Like if you're living your life like a container and not a conduit, maybe you need to start praying for that gift of the Spirit. Like, Lord, help me to be a vessel that you can flow through. I, I, don't, want, I, don't, want to, I don't want to just be a container for your goodness, Lord. I want you to flow through my life. Romans 12, 8 says, if your gift is giving, then give generously. So as I bring this thing to a close, again, I want to try to be practical and helpful, but I want to speak at a high elevation so it touches every one of us in the room. If you want financial freedom in your life, if you want to, to be at a place where you have the ability to live generously, I just want you to know today there's two things you need, two things. This isn't flashy, this isn't sexy, but this is what you need, moderation and contentment. Moderation and contentment. Now, let me just acknowledge what we all know to be true. Moderation is not something we live by in America. It's, it's not, it's not a, a core value of this nation. 
Cambridge Dictionary defines moderation like this. It's the quality of doing something within reasonable limits. For example, you can eat whatever you want as long as it's in moderation, right? Like you, you, can, have a, you can have a cupcake, a cupcake. Don't eat the whole box, right? We're going to practice that after church. There's cupcakes back there, I was told. So in the last 50 years in America, we consume twice as much materials as we did 50 years ago. Isn't that amazing? As a nation, we consume twice as much material as we did 50 years ago. The average home in America has over 300,000 items in it. The average home has tripled in size in the last 50 years in America. 25% of people in America who have a two-car garage don't have room to park either car in it due to their stuff. Don't elbow anybody too hard if you, know, if you live with them. But. And another 32% of Americans only have room for one car in their two-car garage because of all of their stuff. We have 7.3 square feet of storage unit space for every American. Like we could literally give every American a place to sleep in our storage units. That's how, that's how much stuff we have. And while all that is true, it's still amazing to learn that the average American today has $15,000 in credit card debt alone. It's not counting house payments or car payments, credit card debt alone. Where does the fault lie? When you read something like that, it's like, whew, man, you know, inflation. <laughs> no, where does the fault lie? Is it, is it the economy? Is it consumerism? James tells us, James chapter one, he tells us, but each person is tempted when what? When they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Can I just tell you something, church? Our desires will never be satisfied. They must be crucified. That's what it comes down to. We have to crucify the desires of our flesh. And if we're honest today, and we might as well be, we're in church. If we're honest today, most of our money problems, I know not all of them, but most of our money problems, we only call them money problems. They're actually sin problems. Sins like greed, covetousness, pride, lust, envy. It's the same compulsion that, that drove Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. It's what compelled Esau to give up his birthright for a bowl of beans. It's what caused Achan to steal, to steal away the devoted things from Jericho. It's what caused David to commit adultery with Bathsheba. It's why oftentimes we write checks we can't cash. I love the way Dave Ramsey said it. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. But moderation requires controlling your appetite for more. In the most practical way, sometimes it means you just shop less. It means you spend less. You eat out less. Less impulse buying Getting free from the mastery of money requires 
moderation. And, and maybe somebody might say, man, you're kind of pushing this issue a little hard. Is it that big of a deal? I mean, yeah, I know it's all first world problems. Like we're all good here. Everybody, you know, still lives indoors and has food. But, but can I tell you how big of a deal it is? In, in the book of Philippians, and if you have your Bible, go there, because here's another passage where you might just want to reference this later in the week in your devotion time. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes the enemies of the cross. Now, rem- remember, Philippians is a letter of thanks for people that made a financial contribution to his ministry. And he defines the enemies of the cross of Christ. That's a pretty high indictment on somebody to say you're the enemy of the cross of Christ. But here's what he says in verse 18 of chapter 3. For as I have often told you before and now I'm telling you again even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross. Who's the enemy of the cross? I mean we'd be quick to like, you know, I don't know, point out uh, Islamic terrorists or Maybe the guy that's selling Halloween masks down the street. Like, I don't know, like, who, you're the enemy. You know, we love to call out who the enemy is. And, and the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say, here's who the enemy of the cross of Christ is. Verse 19, he describes them. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly Things. He says, you want to know who the enemies of the cross of Christ? It's those people that are driven by their own appetites. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their God is their stomach. Their, their, their servant to their own compulsions, their own desires. Listen, moderation keeps our appetite for earthly things in check. And if we don't crucify the flesh, instead of being kingdom builders, we become kingdom blockers. That's what Paul is saying. Like these people are actually, they're working against the initiative of heaven. They're the enemies of the cross. Why? Because they're driven by their own desires. What's the solution? How do you regain control over an earthly-minded appetite for more, an insatiable desire with all the marketing that that saturates us? How do we overcome it? How do we win? Paul says, here's how. You you, you have to be kingdom-minded. Look at the next verse, verse 20. He says, but, like as for us, that's true of some people, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, including your desires, everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Paul is saying, you got to get the mind of Christ to, to, to stop looking at the Joneses and start looking back at Jesus. Come on, to start getting a heavenly mindset, to be a kingdom builder and not a kingdom blocker, a person that's shackled to the mastery of money is not going to live with enough margin to live on mission. But if you want to live on mission, you got to have margin. Think about how many times Jesus did miracles and they were actually just interruptions on the way. He wasn't going to to help this person. They just happened to be there with a need on his way. It's that margin that creates opportunity for mission. And some of us, man, we struggle because week in and week out, we hear stories of missionaries or, or community outreaches or things that we want to do. And, and you know, the, they pass the offering plate and you want to be a part, but you're like, I've, I've got no room. I've got no margin in my life for generosity. We need 
to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. If you want financial freedom, if you want to live a generous life, you need moderation and you need contentment. As our musicians come, let me just speak about that second word, contentment, for a moment. I'll show you what the word of God says about it. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6, he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's not even the most encouraging part of the scripture. That, that just, that just kind of reads like, well, that's, that's true. But here's what you need to know. Contentment can be learned. It can be learned. Because a lot of people, here's what we do. We look at our, our, our spending, our finances, and, and, and we, we just kind of chalk it up as like a personality thing. Like that, uh, you know, that's just who I am. I'm a big spender, always have been. My mom was, you know, or my dad was, or whatever, you know. You know, we say things like, well, this, this is the only way I know how to show appreciation, you know, which when you think about it is silly to say like, I, I want to show appreciation by giving, uh, giving you something I don't have to give. But a lot of us, we, we look at contentment. If we don't have it, we just say, well, that's just who I am. But look at what it says here in Philippians. Verse 11 of chapter four. Again, this is Paul's letter of appreciation for people that support the ministry. He says, I'm not saying all this because I'm in need. Like, I'm not writing to you because I need you to, like, give me another offering. He said, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. We could all say amen. I know what it is to have plenty. We could all say amen two times. But I've learned the secret, being content in any in every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or living in want. Wow, Paul, what is it? What's the secret? Right there, verse 13, he said, here's the secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The secret is whether I have a lot, I feel like I've got more than I need, or if I don't have enough, like I've learned, I've learned to look to Jesus to be my source. I've learned to depend on the Lord. He gives me strength. So listen, if, if the appropriate response to this message is for you to go home and like get out a pad and pencil and, and create a budget, by all means, do that. Some of you, maybe the most spiritual thing you could do is like just, just have a yard sale. You know, you got too much stuff. You don't need 300,000 and one more things. Like you need, you just go, you know what? I, I just, I need to declutter my life. I need to simplify. I just need to be content with where God has me, I need to practice moderation. But, but know this, more than any of those practical steps, know that what Paul points to and what ultimately all of scripture points us back to when it comes to our money or anything, is I've learned to depend upon the Lord. I've learned to depend on the Lord. And some of us, the reason we get out of balance with our money is because we're not depending on the Lord for our affirmation. Maybe, maybe you overspend because you never felt the validation and the affirmation that maybe you should have got from a parent or, or somebody else. And so, so it's, a, it's an issue of, it's like a Band-Aid that you've put on a cancer. Like, I, I know I shouldn't, but I feel better. It's my guilty pleasure. And, and the Lord wants to add his strength to your life. That, that spending or 
or overeating or whatever else might fall into that category of affirming and validating who we are. We need to get to the place of contentment like Paul that says, you know, I've, I've, learned, I've learned how to be, I've learned how to be at the top and I've learned how to be at the bottom. And here's, here's the secret. I've learned that wherever I am, God is with me. That God is my strength. That God is my source. That I can depend upon Him in this moment. So for some of us, we just need to begin to crucify our earthly desires. Crucify our desires. Say, God, I, I can teach me to, to live with some moderation in my life. We need contentment to receive God's strength. To say, God, I trust you with where I'm at in life. Might not be where I wanna be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. I'm content. And out of that, we can begin to live a life of generosity. A life that says, God, I I wanna be a conduit of your blessing. So I I wanna just pray for you as we end this service today. And I wanna invite you if you'd stand with me all over the room. Listen, with with a a message like this, I, I recognize the application and the implication could be all over the map. So I'm not gonna give a a specific call today, but what I wanna do is, I had this worship team come back up here because I want them to just sing those words that we were singing earlier. I will build my life upon your love. You're a firm foundation. And, And if you're here today and the Holy Spirit is just stirring in your heart, maybe there's some things you just need to lay down before the Lord. It may be specifically about finances and spending, it may have nothing to do with that. But if the Holy Spirit's dealing with you and you're saying, God, I just need to, I don't want to hold anything out of the water. Lord, I want to surrender my whole life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Hold nothing back. If that's you today, as they sing this song, I want to encourage you. Maybe you just want to step out from where you're at and actually come to the altar. Let somebody pray with you today. But let's take these closing moments and just consecrate ourselves back to the Lord. Would you do that with me? Father, we thank you today for your presence, for your word. God, thank you that as Hebrews 4.12 says, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, Lord, and we feel that. Your word, it cuts us like a knife. But Lord, your word doesn't, doesn't punish us. You're like a great master physician, Lord, like a, a scalpel in a surgeon's hand, Lord, you go to the areas of our life that are not aligned with your word and your plan for us. And you cut out those things that are toxic, those things that are infectious, God. So we lay ourselves open before you today in vulnerability and in humility. And we say, God, have your way. Lord, help us, strengthen us with the strength of Christ Jesus to build our lives on your love and to live a life of radical generosity because you first loved us. God, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen today. Amen. Would you just bless the Lord one more time?